Now, where would you go if you could travel back in time? Perhaps Mesopotamia to find out where the first wheel was invented. Or perhaps you might prefer to find out what it was like to be that first person landing on the moon. Well, now you can. Well, sort of. Adam Spencer has written a new book. It's called Adam Spencer's Time Machine, A Wild Ride Through the Ages. And it takes us on a journey to various moments in our past. How are you going, Adam? I'm well, thanks, Sepal. How are you? Now, time machines, have they always been a bit of an interest for you? If you could hop into one, where would you head off? I, I think everyone at some stage wrestles with the idea of just time itself for something that we take for granted and yet is so complicated. Time would have to be right up there on that scale. I think we've all thought about wanting to know the future hundreds of years after we leave this planet. And we've all probably thought at some stage about, wow, wouldn't it be great to just hop in and go back? And that's what Time Machine tries to capture. I start with uh, the first primitive calculating device we think we've found. It's an old baboon's bone with some grooves carved in the side that might have been a calendar of sorts or it might have been a way of women keeping track of their fertility cycles. It's well more than 10,000 years old. And I finish up with a computer proof from earlier this year, a mathematical proof that required 200 terabytes of memory. So, Seppel, if you and I were to sit down and try and read this proof, it would take us about 10 billion years to get through and it's a single mathematical proof and in between there yeah I just stop off at various points in our amazing human history and look at great moments in mathematics in science in thought or just crazy things that we've done to ourselves and each other. And and Adam how did you wade through all of this information I mean you said at the start of the book it's a bit of a personal account of our history how did you pick and choose what to to include in the book and and how did you find all this vast information? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you look at that yourself asking if you decided tomorrow to try and write this book, how would you go about it? And that's what an outsider would think. But I write a book every year. So I knew I had a book coming out this year. So I just gradually accrete knowledge. So I, I just, if I see something that's interesting, I just file it away and off we go. My three books, Big Book of Numbers, World of Numbers, and now Time Machine, have all gone on the principle of I don't claim in any way that they're comprehensive. They don't cover... This doesn't cover all human history or anything, but I do suggest anything that's in the book I find interesting and I hope other people will too. That's pretty much the boundary test. If I read it and go, well, that's interesting, I just throw it in the book. What's been fascinating this time around, we've used an online sort of platform where there's a constant file in the cloud of stuff just being built up for the book. So if I'm on my phone and I see something on Twitter from a famous moment in mathematics that's interesting, I can now just sort of double-click and file that, and it goes into this long list of things to be considered for next year's book. So we've gone from me scribbling things down on paper uh, to sending emails to myself via my own phone, which is a very clunky way to do things, to a an almost uh, modern-day <laughs> way of assembling it these days. But I'm already grabbing stuff for next year's book as well. It's just... As I find stuff that interests my nerdy, slightly bizarre mind, it gets filed away and then it comes around in next year's book. You mentioned uh, your nerdy, bizarre brain. Have you always been a bit of a nerd? I mean, you're clearly a numbers man, as you said. You're a, you're a mathematician. You were doing a PhD in maths, actually, before you headed into the, the studios of Triple J. Um, tell me about the first time, you know, numbers excited you and why. I, I remember way back, and so my, I've got two daughters now who are eight and 11. 
and last year my daughter started doing in year two at school the old times tables competitions remember when you, you know one threes three two threes six three threes and nine you're committed to memory and you have races in class and that sort of stuff I remember them well I used to love winning the medals well I was I, I was a little bit competitive as a kid and I remember I'd been off sick for a couple of days and I came back and had a day of school and our teacher reminded us that day that the times tables competition were on the next day and I'd not been there for any of where we'd done all the times tables and I said what's what what's a times tables competition the teacher explained it to me and I thought well I'm going to win that so I went home and I think I think the next day was like our threes fours and fives or something so I went from not having heard about times tables to memorizing my threes fours and fives in just this sort of three-hour <laughs> slog session at the age of seven because I just wanted to win these times tables competitions. So I was Not competitive much? N- no, not at all. I, I used to love... Mathematics came to me really naturally. It, it just seemed like the sensible way to do things. I was always lucky like that. I don't think I was particularly gifted at mathematics. I just loved it and I did more than anyone else. I can remember asking our teacher in year two or year three, why did the times tables stop at 12? Why aren't we doing 13 times and 14 times? We'd be able to do that, wouldn't we? We'd, it'd just be more numbers and things like that. I, I used to ask those sort of questions just because I loved it. And so I was always, if our teacher set five questions in homework but there were 15 in the chapter, why wouldn't you do the other 10? And have you always loved science as well, Adam? I mean, you're, you're one half of Sleep Geeks with Dr Carl Krasineski and, um, you know, you've travelled around Australia doing quite a lot of gigs with him. Is, is science something that you've uh, been passionate about a lot as well? Not, not in my high school years. Mathematics was the only science subject that I did, to my eternal frustration these days. It wasn't until I got to Sydney University and met Carl and started to do some live shows with him and helping him interpret his work that I started to read popular science. So I'd, I'd fail a year eight chemistry test. I have no formal training in the vast bulk of the sciences. But I do know a bit here and there that I've just picked up from reading popular texts. And that's, that's what's been so enjoyable for me, Seppel, over the last couple of years writing my books, is that putting things out there for people who are, you know, lay learners, not officially qualified, but maybe encountering their first taste of higher level mathematics through something that I've written. It's a great age to read popular science. There's so much stuff there now that's beautifully written that, that, that can take quite deep concepts that touch on the, you know, the verges of higher tertiary or, or postgraduate education and distill it down in a way that you can actually come away with a sense of what's going on. That's what I've always you know, tried to do with the mathematics in particular that I write about. So my, my science knowledge outside of mathematics is completely self-taught just from casual reading, but I do love it. I, I really wish I could have gone... If I could go back now in my own little time machine, might be back to about year eight, and I might change uh, some of my subject choices in high school. No offence to economics and elective art. <laughs> And, and you've mentioned texts that you've that you've read. I mean, one of the ones that you've read that's had a huge impact on you. You've said is Simon Singh's. I'm um, probably not going to pr- pronounce this correctly. Is it Ferrat's last theorem? <laughs> Fermat, or some people call him Fermat, but Fermat's last theorem. Okay, so tell me, why did that particular book have a huge impact on you? So there's. There's famous problems in mathematics. Some people come up with ideas in mathematics, Seppel, and and they they prove what they're thinking comparatively quickly or they quickly realise it's it's not correct. 
And the vast bulk of work that mathematicians are working on, I don't mean to patronise you, but would be very difficult to explain to you what they're trying to do. It's really complicated. You need years of learning to even understand the terminology they're using. But sometimes things come along that are mathematical problems that are really quite simple in that you could explain the mathematics to an eight-year-old, but they're remarkably difficult to prove. You know, one example is something called Goldbach's conjecture, which says that any even number can be written as the sum of two prime numbers. Now, don't panic. Don't freak out here, OK, Sample. You'll remember six is not a prime number because it's two times three. Seven is prime because it's one times seven, but you can't break it into any smaller factors like we broke six into two times three. You can't break seven down. It's a fundamental building block in that sense. So it's called a prime number. You with me? Oh, look, I, I studied literature, Adam. I'm not Come sure if on. I'm following. <laughs> yeah, six is two times three. Seven isn't anything. It's a prime number. Well, now, the number 12 can be written as seven plus five. That's two prime numbers added together. 14 can be written as seven plus seven. 16 can be written as three plus 13. And this guy called Christian Goldbach said every even number can be written as the sum of two prime numbers. Now, we've proven that all the even numbers out to billions and billions, massive numbers, but we haven't shown it's true for all even numbers yet. That problem's been floating around for a couple of hundred years, unsolved. And you get these little gems in mathematics where it's not that difficult to explain the problem itself, but it's proven dastardly hard to prove it. And Fermat's last theorem was a great example of mathematics like that. Do you remember back in high school, Sample, when you drew a right angle triangle and you got shown that three squared plus four squared equals five squared? Remember the lengths of the sides of the triangles, three, four, and five? Is that vaguely, vaguely familiar? Clearly that didn't stick with me, Adam. Oh, it's just you. <laughs> well, Fermat's last theorem is to do with the adding together numbers to get other numbers like that. Beautifully simple theorem come up with over almost 400 years ago now and it took 380 years for someone to finally prove that Fermat was light. right. So the thing I love about Simon's book is it takes this famous problem from the realms of mathematics and translates it into an everyday language and a human story about what it's like to chase a proof like this and try and get your head around really deep concepts. It's a human story that's incredibly readable, even if, like yourself, you don't have a mathematical bone in your body. I love how you speak about it so passionately. On ABC Local Radio, I'm Sarah Amish, and my guest is Adam Spencer. He's that guy that you may have heard on Breakfast Radio for many, many years. He's also one half of Sleek Geeks. He's a mathematician, an all-round funny guy, and his new book is called Adam Spencer's Time Machine, A Wild Ride Through the Ages. Now, Adam, when most people speak about science or think about science, they often, you know, it's about names out like Einstein or Isaac Newton or mm. Stephen Hawking. Mm. Who are your scientific heroes? Uh, in, 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 in the world of mathematics... There's one person I, I tip my hat to in uh, the book Time Machine, who was also the centre of the uh, movie that was recently released called The Man Who Knew Infinity. There was an Indian mathematician around the turn of the last century called Ramanujan. And Ramanujan, as a young boy growing up in a poverty-stricken area of India, self-taught mathematics. 
He found a, a book in a local library of some fairly heavy mathematics and taught himself everything that was in that book and was profoundly brilliant at a young age. No one in his local area understood a word he was talking about. They thought it was all just, you know, mumbo-jumbo. And he finally managed to write a letter to a professor of mathematics at Cambridge, Professor Hardy, who brought Ramanujan over and they worked together. Ramanujan died tragically young, in his early 30s, from tuberculosis. And it's so sad because in his writings now, we're still discovering things in his writings now showing an incredible understanding of some subtle mathematics that's taken us 80 years to catch up on what he was actually saying. So he was ahead of his time. Oh, if if Ramanujan had lived a full, healthy 85-year-old life, I can't imagine some of the mathematics that we'd have in some of the fields of mathematics now. His work was was truly unbelievable. But the other thing I like doing in, in, in my books is shining lights on heroes of mathematics and science that people haven't heard of, um, and in particular women who had a very rough time, even today, but for a long time trying to make any um, foray into the sciences. There's a woman called Ada Lovelace, which is a fantastic name. Ada Lovelace, uh, a couple of hundred years ago, was working with a man called Charles Babbage, Babbage came up with the first, it was almost a computer, a big calculating counting device. He designed this, this, this machine that could be taught to do calculations. Ada Lovelace worked with Babbage, rewrote his notes, adding comments of her own that were actually quite deep and astute. And she took it one step further from, imagine not just a machine you could say, please do this, and it gave you an answer. She said, imagine if that machine then took the answer and did something else with that and then took that answer and did it again and took that and did it again. And you got this idea of an iterative process. Ada Lovelace was describing computers and computer programming. And many people argue she was the first person to write a computer program or computer code decades before the actual invention of the computer. So she's an amazing trailblazer that practically no one's ever heard of. Unfortunately, no young women have ever heard of and aren't inspired by. She had to write under the initials A-A-L rather than Ada Lovelace because it just would not have been the done thing in the day for uh, women to try and make contributions to these areas. So my, I, in Time Machine, I, I dip my lid to the amazing Ada Lovelace. Sounds like uh, when literary authors had to change their name to male names, like George jo- Eliot, for e- instance. E- exactly the same. The mathematics, there was another woman called Sophie Germain, a brilliant mathematician who uh, meant it, it, it was not real. She wrote under pen names and all sorts of things. And it wasn't until she turned up and visited some of the great mathematicians of the day, they went, wow. You look, you really look like a chick. That's quite amazing. And she was inc- <laughs> And incredible. she said, da I am. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not allowed to go to formal university and things like that. Uh, the, the, the pioneering women in the sciences, in the, in the, in the, probably from the 1600s onwards, do some incredible stuff, especially given the, the lot in life they were dealt. Interesting you say that, though, because, I mean, we're in 2016, but it seems that women in science, even though, you know, people like yourself are making maths and science more accessible and more sexy, there, there aren't very, min- very many women entering these fields of study s- still. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it, you have to take that on a field-by-field basis. It depends where you look. In some of the sciences, we have a really healthy um, representation of women, but even then it tends to be more dominant in the level of going into university, graduating from university, even enrolling in PhDs, etc. The drop-off 
tends to be around that age of at university going from lecturer to senior lecturer or senior lecturer to associate professor. That's where we need to focus a lot more time because it's a waste to, to, to find a brilliant young female mind, to invest in it, to have them do great things and begin an academic career and then not go through with it. That's just a terrible waste of their mind and, and resources. And it's an age, Seppel, where we need more women, men, everyone getting involved in the sciences. I, I say any chance I get that mathematicians will build this century. Australia needs more brilliant young minds pursuing the mathematical sciences in particular. Uh, Adam, I was talking to a scientist recently and, and she told me that the, the more that you know about the universe, the, the, the more smaller you feel really small, she said. Do you, would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, in some ways, certainly. Certainly in the mathematical sciences, every, every time someone discovers something, it tends to open up more unanswered questions than it does answered ones. You tend to, from your memory of mathematics in high school, think of mathematics as one little sort of closed block of knowledge. It's just an amount of stuff you've got to get through and it's all done. Well, no, math the overwhelming bulk of mathematics is open and sprawling before us with things that we, we, we don't yet know. We, we, we occasionally, you know, light a match in the corner of a very, very dark, massive room and we can see around for a few centimetres and then the match fizzles out and we go on, uh, you know, feeling around in the dark again. But that, that doesn't necessarily... I can understand what that person's saying, but that doesn't necessarily make me feel less significant. I tend more to look at what people have understood and what people know now compared to a few years ago and think it's quite an amazing and empowering time to be around. You would have heard Seppel about you know, protons and electrons and neutrons, the thing, the building blocks of matter, yes? Yeah, I, I, I've got that we, one, Adam. We I'm following we, you. <laughs> we, won't go any, we won't get any more technical than that. But back in the 1930s, that was all we knew. We pretty much knew about those three basic or fundamental particles. Within one human lifetime now in the mid-20-teens. Within one human lifetime, we've gone from three fundamental particles to 61 fundamental particles, and we're discovering more and more about them and possibly more and more particles. That's incredible if you think about it. In the entirety of human history, asking a really deep question about what is matter, what are things made up of, the Greeks had theories and the Chinese had theories and the Arabs had theories, we've been thinking about that for thousands of years. And in the last 80 years, we've gone from three particles to 61. Now, you can look at that and be freaked out, wow, there's 61 particles, that's just, that's just too heavy for me. Or you can think, what an incredible time to be alive. For young, smart kids now who will go into research, they'll know more by the end of first-year university than most of the brilliant minds that have ever lived knew in their entire lives. And that will be the starting block for these kids to then go exploring. I, I just think it's an incredible time in that sense. And that's why I try, you know, if the books I write can just in some way inspire some smart young kid to go on to be a better mathematician than I ever would have been, then I, I feel I've done my job. Adam, I can't help but think of uh, Malcolm Turnbull when you say what an incredible time to be alive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, he, but he is right. It is an amazing for young minds in particular. You know, my, my, I see my it's a, it's a cliche, but I see my daughter interacting with a phone and just picking it up and hopping online and finding out information about anything humans have ever known. Just it, it, just second nature to her, as much as taking a selfie and showing it to her friends. That that's an incredible time.
Thanks so much for chatting and thank you so much for including the DeLorean on the cover of your book. That's that's just awesome. I should point out that is not, uh, for copyright reasons, that is not the DeLorean from Back to the Future. But if looking at that car does make you think of the movie Back to the Future then I'm quite happy for you to do that. It does indeed. Thanks so much, I'm sure you understand the legal sensitivities around that, Seppel. Thank you (laughs) very much. That's Adam Spencer. His new book is called Adam Spencer's Time Machine, A Wild Ride Through the Ages. And you can find it in good bookstores or you can head to adamspencer.com.au.